It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey, Typology Tribe, welcome to another episode. Today, we've got something super exciting. Bo Reinhardt, founding member of the Grammy-nominated band Need to Breathe, Enneagram 4 with a three-wing. Bo, welcome to the show. How's it going? Well, Bo, welcome to Typology. We've looked forward to this conversation for quite some time. I'm super jazzed about it because of what I know about your current journey as a person, but before we jump into it, because it's going to be a rich Enneagram 4 mm-hmm. conversation, I just want to know about you and the Enneagram, man. What role has it played in your life, in your self-understanding, in your relationship with your own narrative? Yeah, I think first time I heard about it, there was a book going around in our bus, in our tour bus, uh, The Road Back to You. And at the time, it was definitely way over my head, but just nailed me and in some areas. And so very curious about it and took the test a couple of times because, you know, I was like, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably not a number, you know, like you can't tell me I'm a number. So there was a fascination with it at first, but then seeing it more as a tool to understand people, to work better with people relationally with your spouse or with people that you work with. I think that was a big part. It's like anybody would come in the studio We'd have a deep conversation first. I really want to get to know the person before we get to work together. It doesn't make sense just be like, oh, hit hit the ground running. Want to know what makes them tick and where we're going to run into possible roadblocks or complications. So I think what it did for me is I'm super abstract thinker and always very heavy in imagination and overthinking. And I think this really helped ground a lot of stuff and make it less abstract. So just kind of help me confirm some things about myself and also just how I work with others and potentially things I need to work on in counseling. Okay. So let's just dive right in. As an Enneagram 4, I'm always interested in asking other Enneagram 4s, what are you working on in counseling right now? Mainly being okay. I know this is like a cliche thing, but the idea of it's okay to not be okay. I've been working on this music project for the last almost three years And it's so much of my story and so personal. It's hard to feel like, you know, I'm any sort of authority on anything or that this thing is preachy or that I have to be past the problems to be able to come out with to the world and announce it. So I feel like, you know, the lessons are that I'm still very much in the middle of my journey and being okay with the art and the stuff that I'm making right now. It doesn't have to come from a place of being transformed, but I'm in the process of transforming. And that's kind of the hard thing for me to step back and go, I don't have to be well or over this season. I can still be in the middle of it and that's okay. Yeah. I was actually talking to a friend yesterday. I said to him, quoting one of my favorite theologians, Carl Rahner. And I said, we all leave here unfinished symphonies. And uh, it's almost like for those, for people who are listening, who understand music theory. It's like 
We leave the earth as suspended four chords. Suspended four chords. Okay. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it, there's no resolution. There's no going back to one in this life. Right. That's later. And I'm not even sure that's later. I mean, I think there's something about, there's something beautiful about hanging in the tension and understanding that we as human beings aren't finished objects. We are processes. We're always processes. And that's what I hear you talking about. Yeah, it definitely is, is a getting into my story, I guess, five years ago. It's when I really dug in and, you know, you keep thinking that you're getting to some sort of plateau, like, oh, I've reached the, I've reached the summit, whether it's forgiveness of others or forgiveness of myself, being at peace, uh, going slow and not so focused on production or, or any of that stuff. And it just, it feels, you get to this place, you feel really good and you're kind of gliding, it seems. And then something will creep up and yeah, nope, I got to keep chipping away. And, and this is going to be a lifelong thing. So you left Need to Breathe two years ago, and now you're in this process of kind of releasing this sort of candid, heart-revealing story of your experience as a sexual abuse survivor and also in the middle of it. And I'm going to come around to this. You sort of adopted this new name, Koi Roy. We're definitely going to get to that in, in a moment. <laughs> but you apparently have departed a lot of things uh, in the last few years. So I just want to, let's zero in on that just for a moment. Like, did this all happen two years ago, five years ago? I mean, like what erupted for you that sort of blasted you into this place where you are at right now? Yeah, I knew things were becoming undone, I guess. I was kind of becoming unglued. And recognizing that at first you, you want to point at other people and all that, but then you got to take some responsibility and go, okay, what's my part? And I was kind of falling apart at the seams and like little did I know, it's like that seemed more normal to me to be uh, a victim or, or kind of in a cage that I've, I've chosen because it felt familiar. And my wife actually was kind of prodding me to go somewhere for alcoholism. So, you know, 20 years on the road, that was a problem. It was escape. It was something that, that I didn't do early on in life. It kind of escalated quickly and got out of control pretty quickly. So in talking to some buddies, a, a buddy of mine, uh, Ed Cash, he had just gotten back from a place called Onsite. And he's like, man, I don't know what to really tell you about it other than it's like climbing the emotional Mount Everest. And so I was terrified of going and I felt like I was mostly going uh, because my wife wanted me to go, to be honest. But getting there and connecting with people in such a deep way and feeling compassion for complete strangers, it made me want to share. And just, you know, long story short, I was the first one to go in, in a group of 10 people and I kind of blew by it and I said the highlights and the lowlights, but I, I really didn't get into it. I really didn't think I had any trauma. And that's how they perceive me that they do. If anybody's familiar with experiential therapy, people play certain roles and then you kind of act out your traumas. And I was always the good guy or the good uncle or the loving father. And I was like, man, I've got everybody fooled. And it just hit me with people opening up. It kind of tore me up. And so I asked to go again the second time and stuff just came out. I felt like I needed to contribute my story because 
what they were doing was helping me so much. So I wanted to participate in that. And stuff came out, even stuff that I had blacked out that I didn't remember was beginning to surface. And that's when I got into to therapy more hardcore and began to dig into my childhood and why the trajectory of my life kind of took a different path early on and just trying to reel from that and understand it. Hmm. So I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. So I've been to treatment before. And as an Enneagram 4, I look back on that season of my life, which was pretty intense. And one of the things that I learned is that the question isn't when you are talking with someone with a substance problem, right? Isn't why the substance? The question is why the pain, right? Mm. So if you could just in a nutshell, tell me what was the pain underneath the need to anesthetize? There's a lot of shame. I, I think that being a victim, you know, I allowed people to take pieces of me everywhere. And I just felt that was a normal thing. And so I didn't have anything left for myself. And so it was trying to escape that in a lot of ways. But then, uh, of course, there's a cycle. And whether it's some sort of addiction or sexual promiscuity or just living recklessly, the shame that would follow just creates a bigger hole. And so I needed to hide it. That was a part of it. And I've I've always felt like an open person and genuine person. But then there was this one area which was kind of protecting the sexual abuse that I experienced and the weight that it just kind of held over me. Mm. You know, it's interesting. There are just so many fours. If you look at a list of fours, right, the list is not encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, compared to other lists, you know, and again, people are always speculating about what other types are, right? So I'm always taking with a grain of salt. But when you look at Kurt Cobain, and mm-hmm. Amy Winehouse, and Janis Joplin, and Sylvia Plath, and Virginia Woolf, and Ernest Hemingway, they all killed themselves. And so I yeah. think, and they were all alcoholics or drug addicts. And I think what happens with force is we have such a rich and overwhelming experience of emotions. Our emotional vocabulary is so wide and so deep. We see so many emotional colors everywhere, right? Mm. And if we're artists, we use the medium almost like an exhaust pipe. It's like, how do I get all these feelings out? How do I get them out of my system? Because they're overwhelming to me, right? They're both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. How do we get them out? And then if the medium is insufficient, if it just isn't big enough, then I think what happens for some fours is the feelings literally swallow them alive. They just start by saying, okay, what drug can I take to quiet these emotions? And then if that isn't working, then sometimes they just fall into the abyss. Now, it's funny, as I say that, I'm looking at you and you're smiling and nodding your head a lot. I'm just curious why that's resonating. Yeah. I mean, and that's one thing I think when I will talk about some of this stuff, sometimes it's like a comment was made to me. I just kind of poured out literally all the crap that I was going through and people's jaws are on the table, but I'm saying it and I'm just cool as a cucumber. And I think that's the hard thing is because those emotions have been uh, sometimes weaponized against me and can do me harm. And so at this point, I'm like, 
how deep do I go? You know, how far do I, I sit in it? And there's a lot of research that I'm doing, a lot of prayer, meditation, and just digging into myself so much that it, it is overwhelming and yeah. almost probably too much for me to handle. And so I've, I'm trying to pace myself and realize that uh, I, I love the book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that book with John Mark Comer. But just the permission to kind of slow down. I feel like headwise, you could learn almost everything you need to know about how to be emotionally intelligent and how to live life well in one month period if you could just put all the information in. But it's impossible to live it out or to understand it or believe it until you have like that aha moment. And just that it's okay to not be okay. I'm like, eh, that's, I don't know if that was in a Disney movie or what, but now getting to where I'm at now it resonates and now it me- it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so I've just realized I can only process as much as I can process at a time. And I got to close the book and breathe a little bit. I got to let it process. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because one of the things, I mean, I think Enneagram fours are very emotionally attuned. Like they're in touch with their own feelings. They're in touch pretty well with the feelings of others, right? They may not be as concerned about the feelings of others as they are about their own feelings. They're in touch nonetheless. But emotional attunement doesn't mean emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think for the four, where we can get into trouble is in our relationships with others, in our sharing our internal experience with others, if we haven't done some work, we do go too far too fast and expect too much from the other person early on in the relationship. And we get in trouble, right? We share too much and it's overwhelming to other people and it's overwhelming to us. And mm-hmm. we leave conversations and think, holy shit, did I just, did that person simply drown in, I just revealed so much and I only met them a second ago at a party, you know? So it, I remember early on in my own recovery, I was, I mean, you know, there's a, it's sort of like this, right? And maybe you had this experience. You're going down the road of life and you're going about 100 miles an hour and you're drinking or you're drugging or you're porning or whatever your thing is, anesthetizing pain. All this stuff is down there. And then you decide to turn around and face it, which is like slamming on the brakes in a car going 100 miles an hour. And then all the crap in the back seat flies into the front seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the history, all the bottles, all the drugs, all the this, all the pain, all the grief. You're in the, you're still trying to drive, but this stuff is flying like you're in a snowball and it's uh the only thing I can say for me was I spent so many years looking inward and trying to decode what happened because I also have a sexual abuse story and a alcoholic family background. Man, oh man, I had to really learn how to leave my house and go out and be with other people without overwhelming them or me. Cause it, I, yeah. I just spent so much time alone looking inward and trying to figure it all out, which I think is a very poor problem. Yeah. 100%. And it moves into depression mm-hmm. for me. And just like when it just feels so heavy, your heart is way too big for your chest and you're not breathing well. And people even notice you're like, Hey, you need to take a breath. And, and sometimes I just find myself laying down and just closing my eyes and trying to breathe through it. But yeah, it can be very heavy diving into all the stuff. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's move into what you're doing to process this experience of sexual abuse, all this change happening in your life. How old are you, by the way? 
I'm 41. I just turned 41. A couple yeah, days so ago. it's it's interesting that this is all happening. It's sort of the what we would typically call the midpoint of your journey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a, it's not unusual, I think, for this to be the case, right? Yeah. Because I think in the first part of the journey, we spend so much time time trying to prove who we are. It's very externally focused, right? I'm going to get a killer band. I'm going to crush it out there. I'm going to blah blah blah. And then in the second journey, it's more of an inward turn. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different deal. So you just dropped a new single, right? Mm-hmm. And you have all this visual artwork on your website. Just say it right now so I don't forget. Bo Reinhardt Studio. Okay. So Bo, Bo Reinhardt Studio. That's B-O, everybody, not B-E-A-U. Bo, B-O, Reinhardt, R-I-N-E-H-A-R-T, studio.com. And I'm sure you're giving melody, lyric, and visual expression to everything that's going on inside of your life right now. Talk to us about these projects and what's happening with them. Well, Court, they're deeply personal. I think even trying to write a song or, you know, we're in Nashville and I think sometimes like just going to a song write or something, it's really hard for me to enter in because I feel like there's so much that needs to come out and it's so personal mm-hmm. that having people collaborate feels difficult, feels, you know, like maybe it's not going to be as honest or as genuine. And so there was just this desire to do a project that was me in my basement studio and just take as long as I needed to not only process the stuff, but also do the stuff by myself, learn it and just make it as real and authentic and genuine as possible. And so some of these songs, I would be sitting on a chorus for five years and then finally it makes sense. And I feel like Art is that way. You say it and you don't really know what it means yet, but you know, it's coming from a deep place. And then it's the discovery of what that thing means. And so more and more, I'm realizing that the contribution is just the doing it, you know, and not questioning it too much, but putting a lot of effort and intention in it. But this, the record is about kind of me recognizing and getting to this point in my life at this kind of turning point, uh, the first song is called I'm Right Here. And it's about me kind of having a journey and recognizing that I left my younger self, my six-year-old self or my inner child back there and started to take a different road. And we, we went different places and recognizing that I'm not going anywhere and that I'm going to have to face this. I'm going to have to deal with it. And there's no way around it. It's going to take time. And uh, I actually used my son uh, in a music video that I directed and it goes out. He sees himself in the mirror and then he walks away and he kind of fumbles through the wilderness. He's having fun in this place called Diablo Canyon uh, outside of Santa Fe. And it's all fun. And but then he's starting to get a little bit concerned that it's starting to get dark. He decides to try to build a fire and the rain knocks out the fire and Eventually, he wakes up. He's cold and scared, and he wakes up illuminated by the moon, and he gets excited because now he's seen in the darkness, and he's not forgotten. Mm. And so he starts running. There's an excitement that he's been seen. And so he starts running, but then he notices that his shadows are being cast across the canyon wall, and then he starts playing with the shadow, dancing with the shadow, and really embracing it and understanding that the two have to work together. Mm. And so then he comes back to the mirror and at the end he looks in the mirror and it it flips and it's me as my adult self. So 
that's the start of the story is kind of identifying your story and seeing it and understanding it. And that's kind of the first chapter in what this project is. And I'd heard you use the acronym SOAR. And I think it was is crazy because hearing it, I'm going, this is the record. Mm. You know, it's these steps and these this process. And I'm I'm kind of doing it sequentially like that. And that was my process. And yeah, I'm super proud of it. And it's pieces still being put together. But yeah, I can't wait to share that. I think that's part of the rewriting is now sharing it and yeah. being open about it. Oh God, you just actually flipped the switch in my brain. I'm, I'm looking at your lyric here, you know, and it's so beautiful. I'm right here, right where you left me, but I am far worse for the wear. I'm right here. Can you see me? Or is that why you blankly stare? Well, I'm here and I've got a message that I'm not going anywhere. Beautiful lyric. People sometimes grimace when you talk about inner child work. You know what I mean? Because it's it does sound a little like 80s therapeutic goopy. You know what I mean? But then I say to him, I dare you to tell me it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that, that really was just an eye-opening thing, it actually happened in marriage counseling, but I learned something about myself that was just so deep. And it was when you're asking the question, like, well, what would you say to them now? What would you say to work them through this problem or this thing? And I, I was talking about some traumas and, and I was just like blank, just could not come up with anything. Mm. And then I felt embarrassed because I couldn't think of it, but it was, it, all of a sudden my mind just went black. And I was like, this is weird. You know, I've, I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of counseling and a lot of research, and I should at least have some words to kind of throw. And I just couldn't. So we sat in that for a while. And then the therapist said, all right, what if instead of talking to yourself as a kid, what if you talk to your son? And so the trauma that happened to me, the first abuse happened when I was six years old. And so my son is actually in the song at the end, clapping and cheering. And it's kind of like the audience. But the profound thing that happened to me is as soon as I flipped that switch to my son, I know exactly how to care for him, exactly what he needs and how to love him. And it just tore me up because when it comes to loving myself or understanding what I need, I was clueless. And so that to me is why the inner child stuff is just like, it took me to another level. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? That at some point in our life, we end up abandoning ourselves. We end up abandoning that, that small child within us, right? And if we don't go back and welcome that exiled child, you know what I mean? Because that's what it is. You know, we have exiled, we have banished the child, right? And if we don't go back and get them and then integrate them into our life as a human being and essentially do what you do, are saying, right, is we have to go back and reparent the child, right? We have to go back and say to this kid, hey, you know, I know you're in pain and I know you're frightened still, but now I'm here. This is the adult me. I'm here for you. I will take care of you. And when you can make that switch, then really good things can happen. If you don't make that switch, you will come up with really dumb strategies for working with that child, like pouring alcohol on it or pouring drugs on it or pouring whatever your thing is, right? You will do something 
to keep that child outside of your daily awareness. And I'm really glad that you've begun to do that work because it, it's both initially terrifying and depressing at times. And But man, over time, it just blossoms into this, well, you know, it's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, no mud, no lotus, you know, out of the mud will come this beautiful lotus flower. But first there comes mud. So you have now adopted this new name and I'm really fascinated by it. Koi Roy. Now, most people going through a life change don't change their name. And I want to know what's behind it. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I've, I've always liked the idea just to, I wanted to put art into the name. And the easiest thing would have would just use my own name because it would be more recognizable. So the new name is obviously going to fall through the cracks in a lot of ways. But it was more important to me to have some depth to it, some story to it. My dad grew up listening. We didn't, couldn't listen to a lot of secular music growing up, but he loved Paul Simon, you know, James Taylor in Chicago. He's a big band guy. And I just remember him listening to Paul Simon and I couldn't place, you know, I loved the name Corroy, but you know how sometimes our heart feels something we don't understand what it even means. And I was just kind of praying for a name. And it was one of those things where I was getting stuck. And my wife was just like, well, you need to come up with a name. So then you can go ahead and here we are, at least for my own head. I've got all this music, but I need to come up with a name so that I can feel like I can move forward. And I was like heading to the dentist and this name, Koi Roy, I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to that. I haven't listened to it forever. <laughs> Talking about 50 ways. Yeah. 50 ways to leave your lover. So I'm listening to it. And then it, it was just like pulling me and I'm, not a lyric guy first. I'm a music feeling melody guy first. And sometimes it's, it blows my mind how much th that it's actually hitting in there. And we don't even know it. It's connecting, even though we don't know what the words are yet. And so just him waffling this decision and pondering it and being all for or whatever, he, he then now gets slapped in the face, like, come on, just do it with, you know, Think of the first word. Uh, slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. And it just like hit me. I've been waffling in all of these things and these thoughts, but it was kind of like I knew in my spirit it was time to exit the band. But pulling the trigger is really tough. You know, it's something I, I helped build from the ground up and was in for 20 years. My brother's in the band. My best friends are in the band. My identity is wrapped up in the band. And I think. The other part of that is you don't need to be Koi Roy. I like that it says that because it's not my identity. It's something that I do. It's some, it's art that I create. It's going to be a lot of my story, but I'm also, I'm a dad. I'm a husband, son. So this thing, it's a reminder to me that I don't need to put this above my life or the things that really matter. So I love that. Plus, it looks good on T-shirts and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. It looks great on merch. I will. I will. I will agree. And three you know, letters. Three a, letters. Balance. That's yeah. right. There's yeah. a little piece of all of us that has rhymes. to keep that in mind. Yeah, rhymes. <laughs> One thing I think it's interesting. I didn't realize when you were referencing this that you were working through all this while you were in the process of exiting the band. Like, and it helped you yeah. sort of. And then the other thing I like is the sort of the paradox because Koi, Roy, even like you said, when you're at onsite, Koi, there's a little bit of Koi that represents like in the shadows, right? Like kind of withheld mm -hmm. or hiding. So I love that it. it's like 
Koi Roy means one thing, but you don't have to be Koi Roy. I love all that, the paradox within that. It's cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's, it's definitely my thing. I feel like there's a boyish sort of grin when there's a lot more behind it. Yeah. And yeah, it just, it fits. That's cool. Mm. So I just want to finish up our conversation by talking, kind of going back to something you said earlier, which is talking through the language of narrative and through story. And I think this is something that has, you know, obviously captured my attention. I wrote a book, The Story of You. I'm fascinated with this way of doing inner work through the lens of story, right? Because that's how we think of our lives, right? As 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 a story. And You mentioned that acronym that I use in the book. You know, we see our story, which is something you've done. We own the story, which is to really begin to see what it's cost us and what it's cost other people, right? And then there's this awakening process, then really that rewriting. And also, it is an awakening. You realize, oh my gosh, I have been asleep. Mm -hmm. I have been Mm -hmm. asleep for a long time in this bad story. And then this process of rewriting. And so everything you've actually said on this interview so far has been followed this pattern, right? It's followed the seeing and the owning, this awakening and rewriting. You are in this journey of rewriting right now. I just want to talk about what, where are you in this journey of rewriting and where is the narrative going in as much as you can say and in as much as you have control over where the narrative goes? Yeah, that's a lot. Let me hit on some things and maybe you can re-ask parts that I missed. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think for me, me being unfinished and incomplete, I think that's, that is part of the rewriting. I think me sharing my story, I felt more and more like it's important. And I've never felt that way. I feel like, yeah, I can add to a conversation. I love having deep conversations, but as far as sharing it and feeling like there's value in it, that's something that I, I just was like, I I'm not sure, or I need to be more of an expert on it, or I need to know it better or be able to speak it better. I was always a kid. I could be a clown and I could be on stage and ham it up. No problem. But if you ask me to get up in, in front of the class and read something or say something, I'm just frozen. And so that's the thing that I'm working through. And I think recognizing that story where we are right now is just as important as someone who's got it figured out. I think most of us don't have it figured out. So being able to add value to exactly where we are is is what I want to be able to show that it's worth it. We're worth it. And that, that yeah, this is me right now in the present and yep. I'm still struggling. I'm still uh, messing up, but that's okay. And I think eventually we'll get there. If not, we're always heading there. I think that's the point. And so the way that it, other people's stories have inspired me, you know, I'm finally getting to the place where I feel like if it doesn't inspire somebody, it doesn't matter, but it's going to, it's going to inspire someone and it's there for a reason. And then I think a big part of my journey is now is creating awareness. I was sexually abused by three different offenders from the ages of six to 14. And that it's a tough thing. It's a, it's taboo to talk about in most circles. And there's a lot of kind of, you don't want to relive the trauma by walking through it. And so you got to really go slow. But that idea of speaking out and telling your story and telling where you're at and not being uh, ashamed, you know, in those cases, you did nothing wrong. And it's very important to me not to protect the abusers. That's how the cycle continues. 
And there's always a reason to protect an abuser. Like there's so, there's some reason that we just have to wear it and the victim is carrying that load for the abuser. And another thing that John Mark Comer said in Live No Lies is um, without accountability, there is no reality. Mm. And that just hit me really strong. You know, just there's a responsibility for us as parents to call it out. There's responsibility, not necessarily a responsibility, but a desire in my heart for kids to be able to talk about it and have a safe place where they can go to talk about it. Because I, I just feel like in my life, it would have completely changed a lot of things. And, and not that stuff wouldn't be so hard, but because it wasn't dealt with and swept under the rug, it allowed myself to be re-victimized. Mm. And that was a big question for me. Is like, why? Why has this happened to me, you know, three different occasions? And why am I under that when, you know, the next person, it hasn't? You know, it's like, it's, it's like getting struck by lightning too many times. It's like, how does that even work? But it's our, us kind of believing that is our narrative and going, I have to put up with this. I have to do this for the sake of not causing waves. And so that's a big part of what I want to do with the art and the platform that I have. You know, it's so beautiful, man. You made me think of something, which is this notion that what happened to us in life isn't nearly as important as what we think happened to us. Mm -hmm. So we might think to ourselves, we we craft this story in our mind like, I was sexually abused because I'm a walking victim. I'm weak. You know, either somehow or another, I invite predators, I, whatever it is. And that is the thing that a little kid does, right? Is like they have to make sense of their experience and they come up with an interpretation and they slap it on the experience. But the problem is, is little kids are lousy interpreters of experience, mm. right? Yes. And so they come up with stuff. And then if we don't face it in adulthood, we just put that little stuff in our radio flyer and drag it into adulthood. You know what I mean? Yep. And until we realize that, oh, wait a minute, the interpretation I slapped onto that experience. The story I put onto that experience just isn't, mm-hmm. it just isn't true. It, you know, I remember a therapist saying to me one time, I, I had a similar thing to you. I had this terribly abusive alcoholic and drug addicted father. And this therapist said to me, you know, Ian, this wasn't personal. Like, you know, that if some other kid had been born into that family, some other boy, the same thing would have happened to him. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? But I right. had, had, I had crafted a story as a little person that, no, no, no. It only would have happened to me because I am somehow bad. Yeah. And also the response to it. I think that was the biggest thing for me is that I felt like the response to it was to let it go its own separate way, mm-hmm. slap on the wrist, but not bring any attention to it or deal with it. It just felt like, oh, when this happens, you're that's just a tough pill that you have to swallow. And mm. so not really understanding the essence of forgiveness and love because it, I just have to accept it. This is just crap that happens and it just sucks, but nothing can be spoken out about it. And I think that's what really played into me being a victim or just allowing people to run over me. And what I've come to find out is that there's a really good and big heart in there. And I think that predators notice that Mm. and they are trusting of the fact that you're going to let them off the hook or forgive them Mm -hmm. or not call attention to it because you're weak or that you've allowed it. It's, you know, that's the thing with the church too. It's like, it's hard because you want to love and you want to forgive, but 
there's got to be the discipline in there or uh, accountability or otherwise it's hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, well, Bo, I mean, this is uh, this conversation could go on for a long, 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 long time. And <laughs> I suspect that if the stars align that we should have coffee one day, we can talk more and more about these this common journey that we end up. Uh, explore it more and two fours in a conversation like that over coffee it actually people walking by it can feel the heat coming off so it'd be fun <laughs> tell everybody how they can get in touch with all the work that you're doing we have bowreinhardtstudio.com b-o-r-i-n-e-h-a-r-t studio.com uh where do they, they go on to spotify and pick up the new project or not yes it's on all the streaming platforms it's also instagram I have a link there that takes you to any of my different projects and all that. So you can go, you can find the art, you can find the music. I also have another project. It's called Yosemite where I help bands with their kind of branding and visual for stage design or, or music videos or any of that stuff. And so I did that the whole time I was with the band and loved it. So that's, that's kind of in the early goings, but all of that stuff is there on like the link uh, in the bio on Instagram. And that's just Bo Reinhardt three. Or you can go to coyroy.co. Great. Bo Reinhardt, Enneagram 4 with a three-wing artist, visionary, survivor, person in process. Thanks for being on Typology. What a rich conversation today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the time. Appreciate you guys. Well, hey, Typology Tribe, you know the words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.